um, for folks to give to the Baja mission trip, uh, the Baja house build that the students are going to be going on next year, a uh, mission trip to, uh, to Mexico to build a house. We asked for $8,500. As you can tell, the Lord's blessings just came over. Um, so we're super, super grateful that... Um, that for the generosity of each one of you that gave, that the Lord moved in your heart and you were obedient to that. And, uh, and know that, that anything over and above that is still going to go to missions. So and the, the missions team is, is helping as well for, with many of the students in uh, providing scholarships for them to go. So a lot of that, that money will carry over then and also be helping um, indirectly with that mission as well. So um, I just wanted to let you know that we have reached our goal. Uh, we did it, I, I believe, is probably record time. I mean, maybe a month, maybe two, I don't know, but, but fantastic. So we're so grateful that um, each one of us has put our hearts and our minds together, uh, our generosity to send our kids, uh, to send them equipped to Mexico with the tools that they need to build this house. So I'm grateful for that. Uh, so we begin this morning with a message. Let, let's pray together. Almighty God, you are good and holy. Lord, your beauty is beyond compare. Your love is beyond compare. Just your, your compassion for your children. Lord, and it feels like no matter what we do in offering a word, a praise, a worship, a song, a prayer, it always seems to fall short of your righteousness and your holiness. So Father, I pray that you take what we've offered in good faith or what we've laid down as a sacrifice of time and energy. Lord, and you've received that as an offering that's been pleasing to you. Lord, I pray that you take this time now, God, that we, as we, um, as we commit our, our hearts and our minds to hearing your word and to growing to be more like your son, Jesus Christ. Consider that, Father, also a sacrifice of worship. I pray, God, that as we study your word, that you help us to, to see and to, and to realize, Lord, that you have been loving your children. You have been bringing mankind back into communion with you since the beginning of time. And that you repeat that message loud and clear over and over and over again, Lord, in so many narratives in Scripture. I pray this, this morning, Lord, as, as we discover just one of those in the book of Joshua, Lord, that you will give us another reason and another avenue, Lord, in which to praise you for your love for us, for your acceptance of us, for your forgiveness of us, Lord, and for your restoration of us. In Christ I pray, amen. Amen. So this morning and over the next uh, seven weeks, including today, we are going to be in the book of Joshua. Um, the book of Joshua, you'll find that in the Old Testament. It comes just after the, the books that um, was attributed to Moses' writing, the, the 
Pentateuch, uh, the first five books of the Bible. Joshua almost is, is a book that, that almost uh, seems kind of like a, a sequel to or conclusion of the book of Deuteronomy, which was the last book that is attributed to Moses' writing. And um, I, the reason why I really felt like Joshua was a book that I, that I felt like God was impressing upon me to, to teach, I know this sounds like we're far away because I'm sure you've been to like Home Depot and Lowe's and you've seen that they've already got the Christmas stuff up, right? Well, I tried to beat them to the punch because the whole point in like teaching through Joshua is that it focuses us, uh, as you'll see, on this beauty of looking forward to a Savior in Jesus Christ. And it's amazing how God has worked that, uh, the narrative of Christ, uh, his, uh, his incarnation, the, the salvific work of Jesus on the cross, all throughout Scripture, including the Old Testament, and especially in the book of Joshua. Now, we're not going to read through the entire book, uh, but what we are going to do is we're going to do something kind of a little bit different. We're actually going to take a thematic uh, view, a thematic journey through Joshua that really helps us to see synonymous themes that was in the book of Joshua that help us point or help points us to the Jesus Christ and the salva- salvation through Jesus Christ in the New Testament. Um, I believe that um, this is a, a special way for us as, as those that, that come from a very uh, uh, scripture foundational people that we look at this as looking forward to the incarnation, the, the arriving of Jesus Christ. Now in the church age, and you probably would realize in Christendom, they have this thing that's called Advent. And ad, there's nothing wrong with Advent. People that celebrate and that, that honor Advent is perfectly fine. Uh, however, I believe that we can also, uh, without using a, um, a, a really an, an invention, if you would, of the church, we can look back to Scripture and see a, a scriptural Advent, which basically just means f- looking forward to, looking forward to the coming of Christ. So we're going to use the Scripture of Joshua to do that very thing, that to kind of fulfill the same, um, the same purpose as Advent, or as some, so many churches and so many people in their homes uh, also celebrate as well. So who is Joshua? Remember, do we know who Joshua is? Joshua of the Old Testament, Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, you guys remember that song, all right, okay, um, Joshua row your boat ashore, I don't know where that came from, uh, but anyway, but Joshua of the Old Testament is, um, is a very intriguing and a pivotal character uh, in the conclusion of specifically the work that God was doing in his people and through his people there in the land of Canaan. As they were coming out of Egypt, out of slavery, they had made their way through the wilderness, if you'll remember with Moses' leadership, through the Exodus. And as they got to this land of Moab and they were looking out across this promised land, Moses was not allowed, was not permitted to lead the people into the, into the land of Canaan because Moses had had done one act of disobedience and, and, and uh, disrespected God in the midst of the people there in, um, that he was leading out of Egypt. So while God loved Moses, God blessed Moses, Moses is by far and uh, head and shoulders above every prophet in, um, in the Jewish, uh, Jewish tradition, the Jewish faith, uh, he was not allowed, he was not permitted to lead the people into the promised land. 
Uh, God did permit Moses to go up on Mount Nebo, which was there in Moab, and look out across the Jordan River and see Jericho and see uh, what is modern-day Israel. And uh, he was able to see the land, but he was not able, not, not permitted to go across into the land. So that is where we enter Joshua. But Joshua was not, he really doesn't enter the story at that moment. Joshua has actually been a part of, um, of this entire Exodus journey from the very beginning. We recognize that Joshua was a young man. He came alongside Moses as more of like of an understudy. And throughout all of the, the, um, the events of the Exodus through the, through the wilderness and through the battles that Israel was fighting throughout the wilderness to get to the edge of the promised land, Joshua was there. In fact, Joshua was a commander in, uh, in the Israelite army that helped defi- defeat Uh, the Amalekites as they're headed up towards the promised land out of the Exodus. Joshua was a uh, was a close aide, a confidant of Moses. He had actually been Moses's aide, kind of his, uh, his understudy since he was just a young man. He accompanied Moses up onto Mount Sinai. If you remember when Moses received the law, uh, it was Joshua that accompanied with him. Uh, he was one of the 12 spies, Joshua and Caleb, that actually were sent across into the promised land to, uh, to scope it out. And uh, if you remember the story, Joshua, and there's only one other person, Joshua and Caleb were the only two that came back and said, yeah, uh, we can take these guys. And uh, all the other spies said, no, these guys are huge. They're well-equipped. There's no way we can conquer them. And it was because of Joshua's faith uh, and Caleb was along with him that God uh, permitted him and actually um, blessed him with being willing and able to be uh, one of the generation uh, that l- was able to live long enough and to lead the people into the promised land. Um, Joshua enters into the book of, of the book of Joshua as kind of this transitional character, this transitional leader. His, um, his name, Joshua, is actually is also extremely important. It's extremely important for us to recognize that the Hebrew uh, the, the, the Hebrew word for Joshua's name, we say Joshua in English. In Hebrew, it was Yeshua. Where have we else we heard Yeshua? In Jesus. So Yeshua is actually the Hebrew form of Jesus' name uh, that was whenever, if we read it, if we were to read the Greek New Testament, which of course all the gospel writers wrote in Greek, they would write the Greek transliteration. And uh, transliteration basically means they took a, they had equated a Greek letter with a Hebrew letter and then they came up with another word. The, the, The name of the meaning, the meaning of the name was the same, but the word changed just because the language was different. Um, so the, the name of Jesus that's written in the New Testament, because it was written in Greek, was um, Iesus. But Iesus is actually a transliteration of the Hebrew word Yeshua. Yeshua is the Hebrew translation of the English word Joshua. So we recognize that Jesus was this, um, was this new Joshua almost this completed this perfection of Joshua in the New Testament. And I don't think that, that was by, by happenstance. There was a specific 
um, there were specific character traits and specific uh, leadership qualities, specific truths and, and values and, and morals that we receive out of the book of Joshua that point directly to Jesus and who Jesus was and what Jesus did for us in the New Testament. The important thing that we can remember, though, about the book of Joshua, and we read through it, we always see his battles. We see, you know, Joshua led the battles of all of these, um, these cities that were conquered because of God's promises of the land. The important thing to remember, always, 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 the book of Joshua is not about Joshua. And you're going, why in the world was a name Joshua? Well, because Joshua just happened to be the, um, Joshua happened to be the tool in which God used to do his work. In fact, if you were to rename every book of the Bible, it would have been God's work. God's work part one, God's work part two, the Acts, Acts of the Apostles, we've read that in the New Testament. It actually should have been Acts of the Holy Spirit. When you start reading what got, what's happening in these books, you're recognizing that the people, the people within them and the leaders within these books are actually um, tools, they're actually um, uh, vessels in which God uses to do his work. So let's always remember that the work that's done, what, what Joshua's really about is what God was doing in and through Israel with Joshua's leadership as a human being. And uh, we're very specific to, uh, to know and to understand, and, and Moses wanted to make sure that Joshua knew and that Israel also knew that it didn't make a difference who was leading the people, whether it was Moses or Joshua. It was God who was doing the work. We get to uh, all the way back in Deuteronomy just before the book of Joshua in 31. Moses declared to Israel that the Lord is the one who will cross ahead of you into the promised land. He will destroy the nations before you and will drive them out. Moses recognized straight up that he was not, he was not the power. He was not the authority. It was God working through him, working him. And it would be for Joshua as well. So as I said, we're going to make a thematic journey through Joshua that helps point us to the, um, the beauty of the coming of Jesus Christ and the, and the perfection of what God did through Jesus Christ. So as we take this thematic journey through Joshua, we have to look at some of the things that are very common in, in the book of Joshua that, that really has a synonymous or an equal part in the New Testament. And one of those things is um, probably the most important one that stands out is the land. We recognize that the land, the land that the, Jew, or that the Jews, the Israelites are going to, to conquer, that's been a subject uh, matter for all of the people of Israel since Abraham. Remember, God told Abraham, get up and pick up your tent, move to this place. This is the land that I'm going to give your ancestors. So the land has always been this, this, um, this vision for the Hebrew people, for the Israelites. The land was one that was, A, it was promised by God. The land was promised by God. And that's where we begin in Joshua 1, 1 through 5. And it reads this. If you want to read along with me, I, I, I hope that you will set this as your, um, as your reading for this week. After the death of Moses, which the end of Deuteronomy records... After the death of Moses, the Lord's servant, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun. The joke is that Joshua had no parents. He was the son of Nun. But, oh, that one's free. You can, you can use that. Joshua, son of Nun, was Moses' assistant. 
God says to Joshua, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now you and all the people prepare to cross over the Jordan and into the land that I am giving the Israelites. I have given you every place where the sole of your foot treads, just as I promised Moses. Your territory will be from the wilderness and Lebanon to the great river, the Euphrates River, all the lands of the Hittites, and west to the Mediterranean Sea. No one will be able to stand against you as long as you live, Here's a key phrase, I will be with you just as I was with Moses. I will not leave you or abandon you. And of course, the main themes that a lot of people pull out of this first section is for for Joshua to be um, strong and courageous. And the whole reason that God tells Joshua over and over again to be strong and courageous, and don't fear, don't become discouraged, was because the whole point God was saying is, look, this is my work. God said, this is my, the same thing that I was doing through Moses, now I'm going to do through you. And I work through Moses' weaknesses, and I'll work through yours. Just be obedient, be strong and courageous. So the land that Joshua had been um, tasked with leading the people into, it had been promised again from the time of Abraham. It was re-promised again to Isaac. It was re-promised again to Jacob. And then to succeeding generations, it kind of again became this narrative of something that the Hebrew people were looking forward to. And the land that, um, that's related to um, God's gift over and over again in the, um, in the first, five bo- first five books of the Bible, especially in Deuteronomy, it actually, the, the, the idea of the land, the, 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 the theme of the land is actually mentioned in the book of Joshua more than 50 times. So it's a huge theme. It's a huge focal point of what this land was. But what do we see what do we recognize that the land, what was the importance of it? What was the significance of it? A, we recognize that, yes, it was promised by God, but, but B, it was, it was God's to give. It was God's land. And that's something that we don't recognize a lot, that we don't go back and remember that God had spoken many years ago to Moses in the book of Leviticus, chapter 25, through, uh, verse 23. God specifically says, the land that you, are going to, um, that you are going to receive, you are not to permanently sell it because it is mine. God was very specific to make sure his people knew that the land they're receiving is his land. And you're only aliens, temporary residents on my land. Hence the reason why we go throughout the entire uh, uh, history of Israel and we see Israel constantly moved back and forth onto the land, off the land, because of their obedience or disobedience, right? It wasn't the fact that God was giving it to them carte blanche and there was, you know, once once it's yours, it's yours. God was like, no, this is my land and I have revoked privileges, you're obedient to me. You do as I ask. You, you are, uh, I, bec- I am your God, and you only worship me, and then you get to stay on my land. If you don't, I will remove you from my land. And that's exactly what we recognize throughout the, the history of Israel. Now, one of the things that Israel was constantly, I believe, battling with was that they kind of had this, um, this arrogance of entitlement to the land. They get to this place in Moab. They're looking out across. God has promised this land to them, and they have this sense of God loves us, 
and he loves us so much, and he's called us out to be such a special people over everybody else in the nation that he considers us righteous and holy, and he's going to give us this land and make us a great nation. And God says, wait a second. Let me clarify Because not only was the land promised to your forefathers, not only was the land mine to give, and of course mine to take away, the land not necessarily is due to your righteousness, Israel. The land that I'm giving you is actually due to a means of my judgment. A means of God's judgment on the people that resided on the land that Israel was overtaking. Let's read there from Deuteronomy chapter 9. When the Lord God drives out, drives them out, the Canaanites, Moses is telling this, these people, uh, the God's word through Moses to the people, don't say for yourself, the Lord brought me in to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. Instead, the Lord will drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness. You're not going to take possession of their land because of your righteousness or your integrity. Instead, the Lord your God is going to drive out these nations before you because of their wickedness in order to, and this emphasis is mine, in order to fulfill the promise he swore to your ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Once again, for the third time, he says, just so I'm clear, understand that the Lord your God has not given you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. For you are stiff-necked people. Man, that's got to (laughs) hurt. You know, it really does. I mean, I I think uh, what, what God was trying to convey to Israel was that he had made a promise. He had made a promise to a generation that was righteous, that was set apart, that lived by faith, if we remember Abraham's covenant and Abraham's uh, promise to God and his promise to follow him no matter what. We recognize that Paul says that the, the righteousness, um, excuse me, faith, Abraham's faith was credited as righteousness to him. See, God made this promise to Abraham. He made it to Isaac and to Jacob. And he's keeping this promise because of their righteousness, not because of this some 400 years later the righteousness or the integrity or the holiness of, of, his, um, of his ancestors. And therefore, because of the righteousness of the ones that he made the promise to, the land would be an inheritance from God. And again, it's very specific. The land was an inheritance to the, to the future generations, to the, to the offspring of Abraham because of God's promise to Abraham. Joshua 1, 6 says, Be strong and courageous. Here we are. For you will distribute the land I swore to who? Not to you, people that are about to take the land. This, this land that I swore to your ancestors to give them as an inheritance. It just happened to be that this, uh, these um, future generation of, uh, of relatives of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they just happened to be the beneficiaries of the promise that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You see, the land was such a focal point in those first five books of the Bible and in Joshua. And, and, and God was so intent on making sure that he fulfilled that promise of giving the land as he promised. 
And I have to think that it had to be more than just God wanting to keep his promise. I know that God wanted to keep his promise, but there had to be something more, more, um, more specific, more valuable about this, this idea of this land that God was giving the Israelites. And the more I got to study, the more I started re- realizing how this book of Joshua and how the, the narrative of Joshua pointed towards something more perfect and beautiful in the New Testament with his namesake, with Joshua's namesake, Jesus, I recognized that the land came to recognize something that was so much more perfect, that was so much more flawless, a promise that was eternal, a promise that was everlasting, a gift It was also a judgment, and it was also an inheritance of something that we recognize in the New Testament as well. In fact, the writer of Hebrews goes on to say that Jesus had obtained a superior ministry than those in the Old Testament, and it was based on that degree that he was the mediator of a better covenant, which has been established on better promises. And it's not that the promise of the land wasn't good. It was the fact that it was temporary. And it was really, a lot of it was based on the righteousness and the obedience of the people that resided in the land. So even as Joshua is bringing these people across the Jordan River into this promised land, I don't believe he recognized the eternal value of what God was doing by fulfilling his promise of giving the land. Because what we see in the New Testament is that in the same way that the land was a promise and a gift and a means of judgment and an inheritance for his people, I see that the land is also equated to eternal life that we now have through Jesus Christ in the New Testament. And we see that just in the same way that the land to the Israelites was God's promise to them, we recognize that eternal life is God's promise to those of us who are following not Joshua of the Old Testament, Not Yeshua of the Old Testament, but Yeshua of the New Testament. A good and perfect promise. I love how the writer of the Hebrews says it is a better covenant established on better promises. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say that therefore Jesus, he, is the mediator of a new covenant. What is that covenant? The covenant in his blood. So that those who are called might receive the promise of not just a temporary inheritance of land, but what? An eternal inheritance. Because a death has taken place for the redemption from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. There was a completion. There was a perfection of what God had started and had been teaching about all through the Old Testament. There was a perfection that came about in the, um, in the realization of Jesus Christ and the work that he did in providing an internal inheritance for God's people. Not only was it a promise of God, but it was also God's gift. Just as the land was God's gift to the people of Israel, we realize that this eternal life with God through Jesus, through Jesus Christ is a gift from God. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 and 9 says, For you are saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourself. It is what? God's gift. That means that the grace that God gave us, it was his, just as the land was his to give. His grace was his to give. And he gave it freely as he willed. Not from works, not that anything you and I can do to, to, to 
deserve it. In the same way with the Israelites, folks, don't, don't think that you're going into this land, I promise, because of your integrity and your righteousness. This is a gift. It's my land. The grace that we have from God through Jesus Christ is that, a gift. It can't be earned. We can't work towards it. We can't secure it ourselves. It's something that's perfect and beautiful that is, that is given to us, gifted from God. In the same way that the land was considered a, a judgment, a means of judgment for the wickedness that were there in the land that the Israelites overtook. You might think, that, well, this is a stretch here, but how in the world does eternal life with God equate to a judgment? Well, we recognize that something had to be judged in order for life to be lived everlasting. Something had to have been penalized. What was penalized? If we were going to be living eternally, what had to be judged, and I really appreciate this verse from Revelation chapter 20, death and Hades were thrown into the lake of the fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Death and Hades was judged, was penalized, was destroyed. God's wrath was on death and Hades. And because death and the grave, which Hades represents, because death and the grave now have been judged and destroyed, Eternal life is now a, a possibility. Before that, it wasn't. And finally, the land equated in the Old Testament to eternal life with God in the New Testament is our inheritance. Inheritance of a people that follow this New Testament, this eternal Yeshua. Peter's words in 1 Peter chapter 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because of his God's great mercy. God has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 4. And into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. Would you have rathered have a little bit of land or would you have rather have had an inheritance that was unfading, undefiled, imperishable and kept in a nice, beautiful, safe deposit box in heaven guarded by the Almighty? I think I'd go for plan B. And that inheritance is sealed with us and just as Paul recognized in the book of Ephesians in his letter to the Ephesians that inheritance is recognized um, not only as a as a future possibility but we've received a deposit a down payment so that we can recognize that that inheritance is a for sure thing Paul tells the Ephesians that it's in him that you were sealed by the promise of the Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation when you believed. Verse 14, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the, of the possession 
to the praise and of his glory. You know, the amazing thing about our inheritance that we have that the Israelites didn't have whenever they were coming into their inheritance, we already have a down payment, a deposit on that promise. When Israel was standing across the Jordan River looking into their inheritance, they didn't have a little piece of land that God gave them to start with. Hey, just to let you know that this is coming. They didn't have that. But for each one of us, through the grace of God and through the blood of Jesus Christ, through his death, burial, and resurrection, through the promise of his Holy Spirit, God said, look, just to make sure that you are in full understanding, you're fully aware that what lies in your future, in eternity, I'm going to give you a down payment of that to assure you that you recognize this inheritance is coming. And that is my spirit to be with you. In essence, we recognize as Jesus would teach that as we are regenerated, as we are uh, saved like we like to call it sometimes, or as we have become reborn, we do that in this life. So the Holy Spirit that we receive as this down payment, that eternity, that eternal inheritance has begun now. We don't even have to look forward to this eternal inheritance. We can recognize that we can enjoy and appreciate the eternal life beginning at the moment that Christ regenerates our heart and that we have submitted to him as Lord and Savior. The eternity begins today. It began at the moment that you had given your, your obedience to a Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Isn't it wonderful to know that we live in an age of a better covenant and better promises? But isn't it also wonderful to know that God in his eternal nature had interwoven the beauty of what he was going to offer all mankind into the story of a tiny nation of Israel. And that we recognize that all of the beauty of the things that God was working towards then and that so many people today disregard or they read over or skip over or don't read it at all. God was using all of these things as a bullhorn to say, look what's coming. And it's good and it's perfect. A better covenant, a perfect covenant. Not just on better promises, but on perfect promises. Through the new Yeshua. The almighty God in the flesh.